0: Boy, it's great to be here today and to be back uh, with you and uh, letting Chad take the the Sunday off to be at the beach with his family. What a great way to spend a Father's Day with your family. You all are here to hear me instead, so we can all dream of the beach. Uh, Chad and I have been friends for about 15 years and was one of our church planters at Waypoint in Chapel Hill before he came here. Uh, Also friends, longtime friends with Jerry Jones, who was here for a long time, golfing buddy. Uh, If you know Jerry very well, you would appreciate that I've got several clubs in my bag that were in the trunk of his car for a long time, which (laughs) if Jerry ever gets fired from his job, he can just sell clubs on the side, on the side of the road, uh, the way he works it. And so uh, I played golf with a lot of clubs this week that Jerry used to have and somehow ended up in my, uh, in my car, uh, I want to thank you, first of all, uh, again, uh, for being a partner of ours. Waypoint Church Partners is just a collection of a bunch of churches that realize we can do a lot more together than we can independently, and one of the things that we do, other than serving the established churches within our family of churches in the mid-Atlantic, is to start new ones. And we have started, uh, six, we started six churches last year, one this spring, so seven churches in the last 16 months or so. And when I say we've planted those churches, I mean we've planted those churches, you and the other churches that support waypoint like this church does as a mission point uh, you help us to start those churches two of those are kind of in the in the dc metro area one in columbia heights in the district uh, near the national zoo another one uh, started in frederick uh, maryland uh, in september we've got two more on the drawing board they're not done deal yet i can't tell you the details but two more for the the dc district here uh, dc metro area uh, the DMV, is that what it's called now? When I, I grew up, I, I lived on Andrews in high school and they didn't call it DMV back then. That's the new thing. Uh, but the DMV, we're hoping for one in Aldi, uh, potentially out, uh, out on the west side of uh, Northern Virginia, and then maybe another one uh, that would happen up in the Rockville area in the next two, three years. And so uh, we're hoping uh, to even expand the number of churches, sister churches that would be um, sister to this church here in the D.C. area here soon. So thank you for your partnership with that, along with your partnership of all the other churches that we get to start together as as a part of uh, our partnership of churches. So thank you for that. And so we're in this series uh, today uh, called... Uh, the, the Warrior, and, and today the, the theme of the title is The Passionate Warrior, talking about dads and the passionate warrior they are for their family and for their homes. And, uh, and so I want to uh, talk about that a little bit uh, today and look at a passage of Scripture that applies especially to dads, but I think it really uh, applies to all of us. But today we're going to focus on uh, dads in particular. But before we get to that Scripture, uh, I just want to ask that question. Have you ever had one of those friends that when you ask them one question, they give you two answers? You know, and my older brother's like that. Not that I'm bitter, but my older brother was number one. He was really smart, like off the chart smart. Uh, he was an astrophysics major in college, and uh, he's he's a member currently of the Mensa organization. Anybody here know what the Mensa organization is? A lot of you do. Probably very few of us are in it. It's, a, it's an organization just for geniuses. And so I'm not in it. Uh, but he, he's a card-carrying member, and he actually attended and had multiple times the Mensa Convention. Can you imagine going to the Mensa Convention? That would be a lot of fun, a bunch of geniuses, like physics majors, living it up for a couple of days, you know? And so... Um, <laughs> So my brother goes to this and then there's work, I guess there's workshops and speakers. I don't know what they do. I've never been. And so he goes to this one uh, session in the afternoon where it's a physics competition where there's some question that they got to work on for an hour that apparently no one has ever fully answered the, the question in the history of this little workshop and that you're graded on how far into the question you get by the time time is up. And so they, they go, they, he goes to this thing, and, and, uh, and he works on it, and they get to the end, and they said, okay, let's every, see how everybody did. And my brother raised his hand and said, well, I finished the question, and, and I got two ways to answer it, two different ways to answer it. And they said, no way, and he brought it up, and they were, sure enough, he had, not, he had answered this question no one ever had two different ways. And, uh, and so he got some special award for that that I'm sure is like on a trophy case in his house. Uh, and uh, I have different trophies in my house, not for f- physics. but um. <laughs> So you, you kind of get the picture that he, he was asked one question and got two answers. And there's this passage in scripture where Jesus was one of those guys where they asked him one question and he gave two answers. And the answers are pretty uh, important to what we're going to talk about today. And so if you've got your Bibles, old school Bibles with you, you might want to turn with me or in your, in your uh, phones. You might want to do that to Mark chapter 12. This is uh, Jesus uh, is uh, in uh, Jerusalem the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And uh, for three or four days, he's at the temple every day and he's answering questions from all the religious leaders. They're trying to uh, trick him and figure out a way to, to trip him up. And, and Jesus is just kind of playing cat and mouse with them most of the time. And he's way ahead of them. And, uh, and so you can, if we read in verse 28, kind of sets the, the tone for this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. So there was this little huddle over here and they're debating. Uh, one of the other smart guys comes up, noticing that Jesus had given him a pretty good answer. He chimes in and says, okay, Jesus of all the commandments which is the most important and uh, he was going to try and trick Jesus because he figured whatever Jesus would say kind of like the politics of today no matter what answer you get their answer is going to be better you know how that works and so whatever Jesus says they're going to say no that's not it and so, the, and Jesus answered, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And that's the, so Jesus says, I won't give you just one answer, I'll give you two. And uh, both of them kind of, and the interesting thing about this for me is the way that we misinterpret this little passage, because we have all kinds of sermons that we've probably heard on the first one of these answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's, there's worship songs that we have sung for a long time with that, that passage. And usually we think of this as Jesus gave two answers where it's the, fir- the first greatest commandment and then commandment number two on the list. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here as he replies. If, if there's a heading in your, in your Bible there, it says the greatest commandment, not the greatest commandment's. That Jesus says both of these answers is really one answer. That they are not one and two in order, they are one and 1A. They are functionally connected. You can't have one without the other. See how that works? And, uh, and we can see this. Uh, John, uh, Jesus' closest friend most likely on earth, uh, wrote it this way. If you claim to love God, but don't love your brothers and sisters, you're really a liar whoever doesn't love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they haven't seen. And so John, in the same way, is saying they're not one and two. They're one and 1A. They're functionally connected. You can't have one without the other. And so today I want to talk about that, particularly on Father's Day and the way that our fathers can be passionate warriors for their family, passionate warrior for their home. And there's so many people, kids, that, that feel like maybe their dads didn't love them well enough, or, or, or you're a father and you're wondering, am I loving my family well enough? And it's not the, really the issue is not that we're not loving our families, it's probably that we're just not speaking the right language as we do. We're not speaking the right love language as we do. Are any of you in this room familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages by Dr. Gary Chapman? probably more than half the room, that's good. If you're not familiar with the five love languages, uh, it's a great resource that I use in counseling all the time. And the big idea is that there are five love languages that everybody on the planet speaks. And one of them is your primary love language. It's the language that you are fluent in, just like most of us in this room are primarily fluent in English. There might be others in the room that are fluent in some other language and English is your second or third language. But in the five love languages, there is one of them that is your primary language of love. It's the one you speak most naturally, but more importantly, it's the one that you feel most loved by when that language is spoken. And so for you, there's, 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 uh, it goes both ways. It's the way you, you, uh, you like to express love to other people because you're fluent in that. And it's, like, it's the way that you uh, most value being loved by those around you. And so here's a picture of those five, and I want to kind of describe them just for a minute uh, to you. The first one would be words of affirmation or words of encouragement. And, um, and for me, this is, this is when, when you speak, when someone speaks to you in a, in a way that's meaningful, it, it just gets, cuts you right to the heart. You feel that person loves me because of the way they've expressed this words of affirmation. I kind of learned this the hard way as a dad, uh, trying to learn the, the love languages of my kids. My uh, younger daughter, who's married, uh, this is her primary love language. And, and I remember the time that I really blew it because she, had, she was uh, shopping for the prom and she and her mother went off for the day, uh, kind of like this video, would have just killed me to spend a day prom dress shopping. But they spent the whole day prom, and they came home, and she ran upstairs to try it on. And my wife said, oh, we've got a beautiful dress. It's this deep, royal purple dress. And so she, put, she puts it on, and uh, and so she comes down the stairs and turns the corner. And me, being a knucklehead dad, just says the first thing that comes out of my mouth, which for a daughter who's primary love language is words of affirmation, I should have said, that's the most beautiful dress I've ever seen. You look wonderful. You can make a long list of things I could have said. Instead, I said, wow, it looks like an eggplant. <laughs> Somehow that wasn't like an affirmation for her, uh, for her, for her prom dress. And uh, she's now in graduate school to be a, a counselor, and I think, um, I think she's got some fodder for, for great lessons that she can teach other people in counseling. And so words of affirmation, you speak life into people. Uh, another one would be a meaningful touch, uh, and, and that is uh, when, uh, when a hug or uh, a hand on the shoulder, or or something like that, just just really communicates to you a very sense of warmth. I'm there with you. Uh, There's a connection there that happens that way. And for me, this is my primary love language. And one small example of that is growing up, going to church, uh, the the church that I went to, uh, we always stood at the end of the service and sang this one song that was kind of the end of the church song. I don't know if anybody grew up going to church where you would stand up, and on the way out, you would sing... Like one church, it was always, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You may know that old song. But anyway, as we would stand there uh, with, our ha- I, with our hands on the pews, my mom would always reach over and put her hand on top of mine as we sang that last song. And for me, as that meaningful touch was just a connection with my mother that I cherish to this day that I remember from 30, 40 years ago, that there was a connection because of that just one simple act of physical touch that was meaningful to me. And so that's my primary love language. Uh, Another one would be acts of service, where you go out of your way to do something that another person ought to be doing to say, I'm going to do that for you and to communicate my love for you and so an example of this would be if this is a husband's a love language as acts of service he might be confused maybe when he uh, chooses to do the laundry for his wife and he thinks that she's just going to be overwhelmed by his act of service because this is his love language and she's pretty nonplussed about it she thinks well he's just doing the chores you know and and he's a little confused by that and and uh but her maybe her love language is um is encouraging words. And if he would just express out loud that, that he loves her and why, that would be more meaningful. And, and so he's not saying that, so she's not feeling loved. And if she would do something on Father's Day that would be something for as a guy who loves acts of service, if she would mow the yard, he would think that that was going to the moon and back, you know? And, uh, and so it's, it's trying to figure out which love language someone else belongs to. The, the fourth one is the receiving of gifts, that's, there are people that this is their primary love language: is gift giving and gift receiving. That they feel most love when you give them a gift. This is probably last on my list of my five. And I like to stack, rank them in order. And this is probably the bottom for me. And so if you were to give me a card, like people, cards are the best thing for people that re- receive gifts, you know, and for and they love those cards and they keep them in a box somewhere, a card they've ever gotten. You know, those kind of people. And for me, if I get a card, it's like, oh, that's fine. Thanks a lot, you know. But my wife... This is her primary language of love. And fortunately, I learned that early on in my marriage. Of all the mistakes that I have made, I learned this one early on and discovered it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be an expensive gift because the way that this communicates love is that I was thinking of you. That's what it means, is, is I was thinking of you and so I bought you this. And so we were poor graduate students in college and I realized all that stuff at the grocery store right next to the checkout counter, you know, Any of that works, you know? (laughs) It's a dollar, you know? And so I would come home and say, hey, honey, I bought you something. And her eyes would light up like I had just done the best thing. And like one time, I bought a mini slinky. Uh, no a slinky you know and I gave it to her and she thought that was the best you know and so her primary love language is the giving and receiving of gifts and for other people that's no big deal and even though that was my last I realized it was her first the the last uh, of the five is um is quality time and there's some people of of the population that this is the way that they feel most loved is when you choose to spend your time with them and that communicates love to them. This is also low on my list. I can have friends that I haven't seen in a year and we get back together and it's no big deal. But other people, it's the connection of time that's the, that's the most important thing. And my older daughter, this is her primary love language. And so we and I learned this the hard way because uh, when she graduated from high school because all during high school uh, she would come home from school and she would hang out in the kitchen and talk to her mom and dad like she actually liked us as a teenager, you know, and she would on Friday night she would be there for family pizza movie night and she would bring her friends over, you know, and so that's her primary love language and then she graduated and went to college and our younger daughter was now a sophomore in high school and we expected her to come home from school and kind of hang out with her parents and she would come in and go right up the stairs, uh, you know, and disappear for three or four hours, you know, Uh, crying into her purple dress probably is what she was doing. (laughs) You know, but uh, that was not her primary love language, but my older daughter, that's, that's her. And so she will come up, uh, drive up to our house on days like today, on Father's Day or, or Memorial Day or whatever, because that's meaningful. Her Last summer, uh, my wife and I were, were going to drive to uh, Indiana for the funeral of a family friend. And we were talking to our daughter, who lives in Richmond, uh, that we were going to be driving up there. And she's like, ooh, can I come along with you? Uh, not that she wanted to go to the funeral, but for her, whose quality time, quality time is her primary love language, the prospect of spending 10 hours twice up and back with her family was a was a a, a big deal, you know. And most other people are like, "Are you kidding?" You know. And uh, but that's the way that she feels loved, and that's the way she likes to express her love is with her time. And so those are, the, those are the five love languages. As, I, as I'm talking, you're probably thinking this one is mine and this one is, is other people in my family. Hopefully you're, you're, you're figuring that out. Well, the interesting thing is if, if it's true from what Dr. Gary Chapman says that all of humanity shares these five love languages, uh, then it ought, to be, uh, it ought to be true in Scripture as well that we would see this evidence of this in scripture. And particularly with God, who is the author of love, God is love. And so we would think that being created in his image, we would see that demonstrated in scripture as well. And so I wanna look very quickly at these uh, five things again from a biblical perspective, and then just have a couple applications at the, at the end. And so we can kind of walk through these uh, very, very quickly uh, in the same order. The first one would be encouraging or affirming words. And, uh, and, and Jesus was pretty good at this. Uh, the, the scriptures that I would think of would be, number one, that passage in scripture where um, this is the great confession, where Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, uh, and Jesus stops, and in front of his peers, he says, Simon, that's an awesome answer. And from now on, you're not going to be called Simon. You're going to be called Peter, Petros, the rock. That you are you're rock solid. And what college-age dude in front of his peers doesn't want his mentor to say, you're awesome. It's words of affirmation that Jesus realized that for Peter, that was gonna be a big deal. And so that, that's one example that I can think of. Another one would be uh, John the Baptist um, when, uh, when Jesus was coming to be baptized in the Jordan River and, uh, and, and uh, Jesus is talking about him and he points at John the Baptist and he says, uh, Uh, Using a little bit of hyperbole, he says, of all the people born of women. I love the way Jesus puts that. That's just about everybody, I would think. (laughs) John the Baptist is the the best. Uh, Of all the people ever born of a woman, John the Baptist is the best I know. And he says that again in front of a a crowd of people. And uh, so that's words of affirmation for his cousin, uh, John, who was also a preacher like he. Uh, Another one uh, probably I think is most meaningful today on Father's Day is then Jesus was baptized not long after that. And you remember the voice that came from heaven at Jesus' baptism. It was God the Father who spoke aloud for everyone to, to hear, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. I'm proud of my son. And I'm happy to say it out loud to all the people that are listening, I'm proud of my son. And on Father's Day, dads, there's probably nothing better that you can do is to speak the words of affirmation about your kids, I'm proud of you. And uh, we see that evidenced and and exemplified for us by God the Father himself who speaks those words of affirmation to Jesus. Well, the other uh, scripture that we've got, uh, or the other, the next one we've got, the next love language would be meaningful touch. And it's fascinating to me, that I wouldn't have thought that this would be in scripture too much. Uh, and then I was looking at the miracles of Jesus and there's, there's all kinds of miracles that Jesus did. We have about 40 significant miracles that Jesus did in the biographies of the life of Jesus. But many of them were uh, miracles of weather where he calmed the storm or, or did things like that. Uh, but about half of them we know that were miracles uh, that he did with people, uh, that he healed people. So about 20 of the 40. And it's interesting that in 18 of the 20 miracles that Jesus did with people, that he touched them as he healed them. Isn't that interesting? Jesus certainly had the power uh, to heal them without touching them, like the the one story of this, the centurion that came to him who's... who's um, servant was a long way away and he just said, Jesus, if you just say the word back home, he'll be healed. And Jesus said, I've already done it. And he got home and sure enough, about the time that Jesus said that is about the time the other servant said that's when he got healed. So Jesus didn't need to touch anybody to heal them. But in about 18 of the 20 miracles that we have of Jesus healing people, he touched them as he did it, or they touched him, they touched the hem of his garment or the crowd pressed around him for healing, that uh, there was something special and meaningful about Jesus' touch. One example of that that we see is in Matthew chapter eight, probably the most significant when we think about the implications of it. The account reads, a man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he is cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus touched the man with leprosy. And can you imagine how meaningful this was to this man? When was the last time a man with leprosy had received any physical touch from another human being? We have no idea. Years, decades. And Jesus reached out and touched him as he healed him. And that's a language of Love its meaningful touch. Of course, the third one we've got here in line is the acts of service. And uh, the most obvious answer or the example that we can think of this would be when Jesus washed the disciples' feet uh, on uh, the evening of uh, Good Friday, just before the, the meal uh, and the Passover meal. And Jesus, uh, I mean, this is the service industry of the day was there was someone whose job it was to clean, I've got sandals on this morning, uh, to clean, with guys that walked on dirt roads all the time. It was not a high-profile job to wash people's feet in the homes, but you needed clean feet because you're going to get dirt everywhere. Kind of like in your nursery over here, there's a sign that says, this is a no-shoes territory, you know, that when you get in there, you you want everything to be nice. And the same was true in this culture, is everybody's been walking around getting dirt on the feet. So there was a servant whose job was to clean everybody's feet. And Jesus chose to speak that love language to the 12 around him by washing their feet for them as an act of service. And uh, then Jesus teaches them and says, you need to become fluent in this language as well, as I have done to you, so you should do for each other. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That's exactly what I am. Now you need to do what I've done for you. And so Jesus was teaching this love language to these 12 guys about acts of service. Another one there, number four then, as we keep going through the list there, is the the language of giving and receiving of gifts. And uh, probably the most familiar scripture in the Bible is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? That that God in his very nature is a giver, that he's a gift giver. And Jesus actually tried to communicate this in in um, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, if you then, Though you're evil, you being humans, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus is teaching that God knows the language of gift giving more than any of us do. No matter how good at it we get as dads or moms, our heavenly father is a better gift giver. It's part of his love language. He knows how to do that and we can be confident of that. The last one is quality time. I don't know how you would think of this from the biblical accounts, uh, but we see throughout the four biographies of the life of Jesus that Jesus was all, spent most of his time spending time with people. Uh, that, you know, if you read uh, a biography of the life of Jesus, you can read it in about an hour out loud. And about an hour out loud encompasses three and a half, almost four years of ministry. And so we don't have a. a, a big account of all the stuff that he did but when we look at the accounts we see that he was hanging out with people uh, that he hung out with tax collectors and sinners maybe if you grew up in church you, you learned the story of Zacchaeus the wee little man and a wee little man was he uh, and he, he was so short like must have been Danny DeVito size he had to climb up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see and, and so he see and Jesus sees him up there knows that he's not the most popular guy in town And how does he kind of reward Zacchaeus for his efforts to see Jesus coming through town? He says, I'm going to come hang out with you tonight at your house. That was the language of love that he chose with Zacchaeus, was not I'm going to give you a gift, Uh, I'm not going to give you a hug. it, It was I'm going to come hang out with you at your house. And then there's the last words of Jesus before he ascended up back into heaven at the, at the ascension, the very end of the, the gospel accounts. Uh, Jesus gathers his disciples around him up on the mountain where he had told them to gather. And he said, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he finishes. This is the last sentence before Jesus goes back up into heaven. And lo, I'm with you always even to the very end of the age. It's his presence in the form of the Holy Spirit that's with us always. That quality time from God himself is one of the languages of love that God has. And so if Gary Chapman is right that there are five love languages, we see that in the very nature of God, scripture de- demonstrates that God is very fluent in all five of those languages of love. And so, um, This works so these five love languages works for parenting pretty well, doesn't it? Do you do you happen to know, the parents, what are the primary love languages of your kids? There's actually a book uh, that's a sequel to this one, the five love languages of children, written by Dr. Gary Chapman as well, and. Uh, We had tried to discover this for our kids before the book came out, but we now have an 11-year-old son in our house and we're trying to figure out what his is. He's looking like there's a couple three that we think might be, but he's not quite developed yet enough to lock it in. But I think parents and especially dads, you need to try and figure out what are the love languages of your kids and how many children uh, enter into counseling later in life because as adults, they feel like they weren't loved well enough by one of their parents and particularly their dad. And the odds are that the, uh, it's just that the dads weren't expressing their love in the language that the child was best suited to receive, the love language that they were naturally fluent in. Does that make sense? And so, for example, you've probably heard friends of you yours who um, that as children, they would say that one of their parents wasn't a hugger. Have you ever had a friend that would say that? Because probably they would say that because their primary love language would be physical touch, meaningful touch. Or maybe you've had friends that have said that, that their dad just never said the right thing. Their primary love language is probably affirming words, right, encouraging words, or a, a child who would say that their dad just wasn't there for them enough. Well, they're saying that probably because their primary love language is quality time. See how that works? And, uh, so, uh, and this works in marriage counseling as well. It's huge. When I do pastoral counseling with couples that have gotten sideways with each other, this is one of the, one of the, things, one of the resources that I use immediately is saying, you, you guys probably do love each other. You're just not speaking each other's love language. Have you learned how to do that yet? And the odds are, I was a math major, so I love odds and math. Uh, the odds are really against us when we get married Uh, or even with our kids, that we're going to speak their language because there's five love languages and two of us. So I've only got a one in five odds, all right, that I'm going to speak the the natural love language of my spouse because if my primary one is meaningful touch and my spouse is gift-giving, that's one of the other four uh, options, isn't it? So I've only got 20, there's 80% chance as a married couple that I'm not going to be fluent in my spouse's primary love language. And the same is true for your kids. It's not that we're not speaking each other's love language. Uh, It's not that we're not speaking love. It's not that uh, we're not speaking their love language that they're fluent in. And uh, so so we have to learn to speak a second language with your spouse and maybe even a third and a fourth with your kids. It's kind of like learning Spanish and or Russian or whatever languages that you need to learn uh, physically, we need to learn to become fluent in them uh, in the love language perspective as well. And so the big uh, deal as we're trying to figure out how to do this, and maybe you're thinking right now, thinking back about the relationships you've had and how that you came to this crossroads with someone in your family because you just had not yet figured this out. And so the, 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 the thing that I would try and say is you've got to learn to learn that second language, even though it's going to be kind of bumpy as you do it. because The reason why is because it's not, you're not fluent in it. Have you ever tried to speak a language, a physical language that you weren't fluent in? You know, the first time you do it, it's, it's kind of awkward. And if you travel overseas, what you'll discover is that you don't have to be fluent in someone else's language for them to realize that you're trying And so if you go over to France and you try and speak your little bit of French that you know, uh, they're not gonna worry about how poor your French is. They're gonna appreciate that you're trying to speak in their language and not demanding that that they speak in yours. And they, they really appreciate that. And often, here's the trick, when you even make an attempt poorly to speak in their language, they often start trying to speak your language instead as poorly as it is for them. Have you ever seen that to be true? So they're trying to speak English badly and you're speaking French badly. But the reason you're doing that is because you're trying to relate to each other because you've made the first effort to speak their language first. And uh, so, and you can bumble along and stumble along and that doesn't matter uh, because you're learning. My wife and I were missionaries in Ukraine right after uh, communism fell in 1993. And, uh, and then we went and we helped start a church there and we went back about 10 years later on a, a mission trip, but we got to meet a lot of the people that we knew when we were there. And there was this one lady who had been really pivotal, pivotal in my wife's life there, a, a really good, good friend and, and, um, that she had discipled. And we were having dinner at her house and she had made it a big to-do with a lot of friends and family come over, just a big spread at her house. And so we got to the end of the meal and Russians are often, a, a Ukrainians, Russians are, are often a lot more formal than we are in the United States. And so at the end of the meal, there was kind of this time of almost like toast where it was like a for, official and someone would stand up and, and make a statement about that. And so, um, so we had gotten through that. And so my wife stood up and brought up Olga, her friend, and stood there and wanted to express... Uh, her love for Olga and how she had been such a good confidant of hers. And so she said, my wife said, in, um, in her very broken Russian, uh, Olga, I love you. You are my great and dearest ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and Druga and Drug kind of sound the same, and everybody laughed. But they didn't think my wife was an idiot. They were endeared to her because she was trying to express in Olga's language how much she loved her. And the same is true in the love languages for you and your family members and your friends, that you may not be very good at speaking their language of love, but when you start speaking their language and make the effort, if your primary love language is this and you make an effort to do it this way, they're gonna appreciate the effort and they're gonna start trying to speak your love language to you as well. And so um, so here's just a couple of applications that I would just real simple applications I would say uh, as we're wrapping up this morning number one as a lot of people as a pastor I've discovered really struggle with this idea can God really love me does God the father real, can he really love me and this really simple answer is yes God is not only love but God is fluent in all five languages of love and he speaks yours And there is no one better equipped to love you than our Heavenly Father. And so if you have doubts about our Heavenly Father being able to love you because of who you are or what you've done or all the baggage you carry around in your head, you don't need to worry about that. Your Heavenly Father speaks all five love languages and he speaks yours. Second application I would say is uh, that we not as Christians, as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, we don't need to learn a second language or a third language of love, but I would challenge you as a disciple of Jesus Christ to make it a, a goal of yours to become fluent in all five languages of love. To have that, you know, our current first lady uh, from all reports is, is fluent in f- five different languages. And I would say to, to uh, in a spiritual sense, to be fluent in all five languages, not just the one you're already current in and and one more, but to figure out a way, how can I become, get furthest down the road with all five? And here's the reason why. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he goes on and says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so Jesus is saying that you need to learn to love each other the way I have loved you. And it's pretty clear in scripture that Jesus loved us with all five languages, didn't he? And so he's saying with the breadth of God's love, that's the way I want you to learn to love each other with all five languages, not one or two. And Jesus finishes and says that the world has the right to judge the authenticity of our discipleship, not based on how often we attend church, or how much money we, we give to the church, or if we were to go on a mission trip, or how many Bible verses we can quote from memory. Jesus says that the world has the right, the absolute right to judge the authenticity of our discipleship based on the way, the way we love each other. And often we're trying to love each other, but we don't do it well because we haven't learned the breadth of God's love speaking all five languages. And so we do that by loving just as he did, speaking all five loving languages. And so as we close, I would say for your dads, uh, in, if they're still living, uh, today would be a great day to start to work on this, maybe second, or what's your dad's love language? And uh, to speak on this day, uh, your, a way to love him in his love language, not yours. Have you ever thought of it that way? If it's physical touch, he needs a hug. If it's words of affirmation, you can post on Facebook how much you love and are proud of your dad. If it's gift giving, you can buy him an ugly tie, uh, you because know, he won't care. You've thought of him, you know. Uh, if it's acts of service, mow the yard while he's watching the U.S. Open. Uh, whatever it is, what's your dad's love language? You can speak it to him uh, as a child, and and uh, kids the same way for for your dad. Let's pray.